Hey gang, welcome to episode 234 of the No Persinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from the No Pro Studio, aka the kitchen table here in Los Angeles. This week on the show, we've got someone I've wanted to have as a guest for a long time now, Yuval Sharon, the artistic director of the industry. That's the opera company here in Los Angeles behind such work as Hopscotch, which uh, made a stir nationally, and Invisible Cities, which... Uh, it's kind of involved in the uh, origin story of NoPro because uh, when I got back from seeing Sleep No More, um, I, uh, I I missed out on Invisible Cities and and everything went from there. Um, so yeah, I might actually tell part of that story here. So I'm not going to recount it right now. They have a new show coming up at the L.A. State Historic Park called Sweetland. Uh, it's going to be a two-tracked opera. Uh, so uh, not not like a Mix well, kind of, kind of like a mixing board, two tracks. Yeah, there's like there's like one track that goes one way and one track that goes another way, and there are different songs, different views of the experience, different perspectives. We get into a little of that, uh, but Yuval and I, we we had this like limited amount of time to talk because uh, we sandwiched it between meetings, and LA traffic did what LA traffic does, uh, and, and shaved off some more time for us. So this is a, a, a densely packed episode, uh, and Yuval comes at this uh, comes at this world from a, a totally different angle. And a lot of the work he's been doing has been in parallel to what folks in the immersive theater world is. So this is this is for from my point of view, this is a pretty big episode for us. Uh, so I hope you get a lot out of it. Let me uh, give you a couple of quick updates on where things stand. We are still selling badges for the Here Summit and Festival, and we're still announcing things for this Here Summit and Festival, which is really exciting. You can check all that out at herefest.com. Badges are still available. Uh, the, the full price $600 badges are still available. Uh, we will be opening up uh, Saturday only sales once we've concluded sales on the three day badges. Uh, so uh, if you're if you're holding out, well, they'll be holding out a little longer. Um, we are at this point where more people have pre-registered by like a lot than we have badges. So um, if you've been if you pre-registered and you're wondering, hey, I never got a, a notice, check your spam filter because the emails are going there for a lot of people, uh, which is driving me nuts. Um, but also, uh, uh, if you have gotten the email, just know uh, you may run out of time. And we are going to wait, uh, W-E-I-G-H-T, we're going to wait a selection process on workshops and uh, festival items, because those are constrained. Like, we don't have enough tickets for the festival stuff so that everyone can see everything. In fact, everyone's going to get to see one thing that's big and one thing that's small. That's the plan. Um because it's a bonus, it's not the focus. Um, but we're going to wait selection process based on when people bought their ticket. Uh, it's not going to be the only thing that determines it, but it is going to be a factor. So the sooner you get a, uh, a ticket, uh, the better uh, pulls you're going to get. Uh, and uh, we've we've done some stuff when it comes to the scholarships and subsidies as well, so that that's, that's fair in terms of, of all of that. Um, I'm really excited uh, and about what we've already announced and there's more to come and I don't want to read the whole thing. So just go to herefest.com and check out our programming page and just go, Wah! um, and know that maybe there's a, a couple more things, uh, we've got in the back pocket that we're, we're working on for you right now. I mean, not right now I'm recording a podcast right now. If you want to keep up with the latest of what's going on with the Summit Inn Festival, two things for you. One, uh, sign up for the mailing list. There is a separate non-no-pro mailing list for the Summit. Sign up for that at herefest.com. Uh, and also um, hang out on the no-pro Slack. Uh, particularly those of you who have bought your badges uh, or secured them, uh, there is a Summit channel uh, where we do the latest updates. Uh, kind of like a you know, private communication channel for everybody, uh, keeping everyone oriented on what is going on. 
and I'll be plugging some stuff in there today. Um, this is a great time for that. Uh, one more thing, and that's an update on our Patreon. Um, we're, we do have a new sustaining backer who's scheduled to come on next month. That's how that always works. Uh, so I'm not going to announce any names today, but very thankful someone's pledged. Um, we've got two. Is that right? Where is this? Well, hey, yes, two. <laughs> My notes have changed. Two new backers right now, Alina and Monera Mason. Thank you both. Uh, we're almost back up to where we were in December. Um, if you're hearing this on January 31st and you've got a dollar or $5 a month you can spare, it would mean a lot. Remember, this whole contraption, everything we do, uh, is, is funded by you my entire life. Uh, so... <laughs> Oh boy, it's scary, uh, and I'm very thankful for all of you who do support us. Patreon.com slash no proscenium, and I haven't been getting this lately, and it's been bad. Our sustaining backers, as of this moment, are Mark Baltazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Lonnie Hansen, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, Sidney Guillory, and Jeremy Charles Hahn. Thank you all so much. You are the backbone of what we do, and uh, yeah, I'd, uh, um, I'd, I'd be homeless without you. Literally, literally homeless. Uh, okay. Well, on that cheery note, hi. Um, let's get into the interview uh, with Yval Sharon of the industry. I'll see you on the other side. Yval, thank you for having me up at your shed. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for coming up here. Hopefully this recording makes it out of the shed. Yes, uh, I know. I know. It's always, it's like a 50-50 chance. Uh, <laughs> um, it's it's kind of funny, like, um, God, we've been doing this podcast for like better part of five years now, mm -hmm. and you've always been uh, one of the people we've wanted to have on the podcast mm -hmm. because um, the industry is actually uh, integral to the No Pro origin story because... Six years ago, when I, a little over six years ago, when I got back from New York, having seen Sleep No More and Then She Fell, I was like, well, there's got to be stuff going on. And uh, Invisible Cities mm -hmm. was at Union Station, mm -hmm. and I could not get tickets. Oh, and no. I missed it. Oh, and no. I was like, okay, well, that can't happen again. And that <laughs> was part of the inciting incident that leads to six years later, and we're sitting in a shed talking to microphones. Yeah, well... Thank you so much. I'm so glad that that um, that our work's been able to uh, inspire you to to do such great work in terms of connecting other artists that are interested in other modes of presentation, other modes of spectatorship. Uh, it's been all about what the industry has been pursuing. So, um, so it's so nice to hear that we were uh, that we were an early uh, inspiration for you. Um, and um, I'm so glad that we're continuing the conversation. Then, absolutely. I mean, for for those who are listening who might, particularly the people who are like not in Los Angeles, because I. I think if you if you're in Los Angeles and you've paid attention to the scene for the past few years, it's impossible to miss Hopscotch, for instance. <laughs> but for those who are outside, um, could you explain what the industry is, yeah. what you, what your work has been to do? Sure. Date? Yeah, the industry is a company for experimental opera, um, for new and experimental opera, really. And our mission is to expand the definition of opera through changing the way that it is performed, changing the way that it is um, uh, experienced and uh, changing the way that uh, it's produced. So um, so that's been kind of our uh, our mission up till now, and that has uh, manifested itself in some unusual ways, certainly. And most people hear the word opera and they imagine a you know traditional proscenium, um, mostly because of the acoustic properties of opera. Mm. If it was not amplified, which, which you know, the majority of operas written before 1950 are uh, meant for acoustic halls. And so sound, especially a singer sound, doesn't necessarily sound great in 360 degrees. It really is requiring the singers to face front so that they can be heard over a large orchestra and in a large hall. So those acoustic properties have uh, led opera to feel maybe a bit stuck behind the box. But like so many art forms in the 20th century with uh, you know what, what electronics have been able to do for uh, amplifying the voice and making the voice kind of larger and the reach of the voice larger, it's meant that we don't have to be 
uh, beholden purely to that mode of presentation in terms of behind the proscenium arc and uh, you know in, in traditional theaters. So um, a lot of what we've been able to do with the industry um, has been um, thanks to the uh, the intervention of these um, technological apparatuses like the ones that we have right in front of us uh, recording us right now. Um, uh, it's 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 led us to think about uh, pieces that could happen in 360 degrees uh, because the singers could then be heard in 360 degrees all of a sudden. Um, so it's led to our very first uh, piece was a piece called Crescent City, which took place in a warehouse in Atwater Village and and uh, allowed the uh, spectators to kind of move freely around the warehouse and to see the opera from every potential different perspective possible. And um, I, I had heard tale of that because I think I knew some people from CalArts who were like mm, working on it. Yeah. And like and like they were explain. I was like at someone's house party and they were like explaining to me what was going on. I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> and then like and this is before No Pro. I was just like, oh, that sounds kind of cool. Like, I wonder if we should. I wonder if I could like should go cover that and then like I didn't and the next thing I know uh, there was well yeah the next yeah. the piece we did after that was what uh, as you mentioned earlier Invisible Cities that one that one garnered a lot of attention because it involved the audience walking freely among the everyday life of Union Station hearing the opera happening live uh, via wireless headphones and so that um, that had uh, that that certainly probably put us on the map in a, a in a very loud way. Let's put it that way, <laughs> um, and did draw attention to a lot of trends in um, in um, active spectatorship along the lines of immersive theater or participatory theater. And those are all topics that um, th those are all kind of I guess. Ideas that I've had issue with um, for several years, and and uh, I hope we'll get to that conversation. But to to kind of wrap it up, you you um, you mentioned the the piece Hopscotch, which was in a way the the. Uh uh, kind of maybe the biggest experiment with this audience on the move by actually putting audiences in, in multiple cars traveling around Los Angeles, uh, 24 cars simultaneously, meaning 24, basically 24 operas happening at the same time for four audiences at a time, taking people on a kind of journey through LA uh, that all formed one link and one and one circle in a way. Um, so those were the those are the ways in which this kind of expanded vision of opera have manifest themselves up until now. I remember remember when you were you were putting together Hopscotch and there was a talk you gave uh, just like it's like a room of like 30 of mm -hmm. us or so. Yeah, I, think, I remember I think that too. Tanya Soto is now at um, Tender Claws. I think she arranged oh, that yeah, one. Exactly. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and, right. That and was it, a great talk. I remember yeah. that was a great, great audience there. And, and I remember you explained what you were going to do, and I was like, this sounds impossible. <laughs> like he's 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 either a genius or or this is all a bunch of bunkum because there's <laughs> like the structure here alone. <laughs> like even if they pull it off logistically, how could it be satisfying? Yeah. And yet it, yet it was satisfying. But there was something oh, you said. In that talk, mm. um, we were talking about the meaning of just the word opera, mm. and 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 this idea of like taking these different disciplines mm. in, mm. Um, and yeah. that's always that's always struck me. Yeah. Um, do you yeah. remember? It's probably. I mean, it's. I still. Uh, well, it might have changed since then. I doubt it though, because it's still the reason I got into opera was not because of what most people think opera is in terms of its 19th century version of opera, you know, the proscenium, the proscenium arc, the very loud singers, um, you know, the huge orchestra, the uh, empty sense of spectacle, you know, all of those things are, are kind of cliches of opera. Sometimes they're true, more often they're not true, mm -hmm. uh, but that is the stereotype that I think opera has to face. It took me a long time to actually warm up to opera. I had to finally realize that opera is actually uh, an emerging art form. Uh, it is an art form that has not yet found its articulation point in so many ways because it is um, not, uh, it's a genre in which all the different arts come together and in which they all kind of vie in a very unstable way um, for a kind of. Um, one could say that, you know, in, in situations where it doesn't work very well, you know, they're, they're all vying for attention. They're all vying mm. for dominance among each other. Yeah. That, that can cause some really interesting uh, explosive uh, results for opera. Um, but, but more often than not, what I've discovered is when all of the different art forms are somewhat set free and they're all, they're all kind of rotating around a central idea um, in which they also have an independence even among uh, the, mm. the, the way that they, they're connected then what you, cre what you create is a sense of a kind of unexpected harmony that seems absolutely impossible because how on earth could all of these things be coordinated to work together well? But when they do, that sense that they all strike this kind of inevitable chord is uh, is really astonishing and, and awe-inspiring when it works best. And I think that's, to me, that's at the heart of what opera is. 
And I think that that's also at the heart of so much contemporary artistic practices along different genre lines. Yeah. Whether it's whether it's music, whether it's visual arts, sculpture. I mean, you see more and more uh, artists wanting to work with people in different disciplines to expand their own idea of what it is that they see. You know, their perceptions of the world by uh, definition, by well, not def- by definition at least, but uh, through the process of this encounter with a different genre. Um, what that does to expand your ideas and expand your mind and let you see the world from a new from a new perspective. That, that, that idea of like, you know, the, the different forms being released, right? Because like mm-hmm. so much, you know, we talk about, when we wind up talking about experience design or, or, or narrative design or game design, there's always this sense of like we're building, we're building like the perfect cage for, for mm. or we're building the perfect sandbox for something to happen and we're shaping people. But this is a, this is a, a the flip of that, this mm-hmm. idea of we're going to empower the different forms to yeah. like riff on the theme and, and there be, there be like an organizing spirit to yeah. it all, mm-hmm. but not necessarily a str- like a, shackles i'm making I'm making like a, <laughs> yes. a contained motion with my arms no but that's i think exactly right i mean it's the sense that um it's not about a domination of all of the art forms i mean one of my other big loves with uh, contemporary opera is wagner but uh the 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 common misperception i think but the common uh image of wagner was that he wanted all of the arts to actually be shackled like you said or mm. be relegated to some overarching theatrical idea that Wagner had in his head. And so even the music, the text, everything was subordinate to this higher notion that he called Gesamtkunstwerk or total work of art. Um, I think that's actually a misperception of what he was after, but the sort of Brechtian critique of Wagner was that all the arts get thrown into some big uh, some big stew and all of it loses its flavor because it's all uh, because all the individual elements are are shackled together or lost you know in that in that in that mix and I think what Brecht was after with the the, the separation of the elements um, I, I feel like what's interesting is is not one direction or the other but something in between those two you know where yeah. it's like the the elements are separated they have independence and yet they also merge because they, they get into conversation with each other yeah you know it's exactly. like um for, this is weird that it's making me think of this but i saw this piece up in it was a it was a artist at one of the design schools in vancouver uh, who had created a, a vr version of a comic book mm. And what was fascinating about that is like there was a version, there was a thing where there was like a motion comic thing to it, but you could view the comic and he did all of the art inside VR. He used, um, I think Oculus's medium tool to draw Mm, everything mm. and he could present it to you on a tablet Mm. and you could look at it that way, Mm. or you could go into VR and it was presented in a spare sparse white gallery frame by frame. You could look at the individual frames taking Mm. the comic out of context the way a lot of comic book reader apps do. But then you could also walk into the frame and then explore inside the frame Mm. and see what was around the corners. And these two different modes of storytelling, the comic medium Mm -hmm. and, and the spatial medium Mm -hmm. of VR Mm -hmm. were able to inform each other and even inform I make comment about the world. I make a comment about like, oh, well, there are stories outside the frame. Yeah. And cool. if you go inside the frame, you can discover what the other stories are. Mm-hmm. Like things don't just happen, you know, uh, out of nothing. And yeah. I thought that was absolutely a, a beautiful thing that only happened because of this conversation between mm-hmm. mediums. That's That sounds amazing. And I yeah. definitely think that, I, I think I, I've been really trying to explore with the industry, creating pieces in which that sense of the different perspectives uh uh, are possible again one of the things that that is difficult about kind of conventional theaters certainly operas uh, operatic theaters is this feeling of this kind of privileged uh perspective point of the sense of there's one you know the the, the king in his box has the best view of the stage and the best acoustics and everything is uh is subordinate to that one very privileged perspective and um you know that is that is not a vision for our society that I think we uh, that 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 many of us believe certainly yeah. certainly not here, uh, but looking for it actually much more of a situation in which uh, the different that the, the individuality of your perception in the world um, gives you an incredible personal access to um, to the world, uh, and it has enormous limitations too. 
Yeah, no, that's that's a big thing right there. I mean, you talk about that privileged perspective, and it reminded me there's I I saw a Cirque du Soleil piece um, years ago, and I got lucky enough to see it twice. Once from um, the nosebleed rafters mm-hmm. up on the far house left side, and another time uh, down in the VIP section mm. at center. Mm. And yeah. it was, it was night and day, yeah. like the nosebleed sure. side. It was, it was, and this was a three quarter, this is a three quarter thrust stage mm. circus act. Mm. And yet it was still, yes. it was still all the energy was directed down front. Right. And the, the, right. the difference in quality of those shows were, were, I mean, was yeah. incredible and, and in a disturbing fashion. Well, what I, I mean, when I direct opera in traditional theaters, I'm always struck by this because um, I, I, I just did earlier, well, last year, I guess, a year ago, I did a, a production of Magic Flute in Berlin. Mm. And it's in an extremely old-fashioned theater, you know, originally built in the, well, when was it built, actually? In the 18th century, actually. Oh, wow. it's, an, it's an old building with that kind of horseshoe. And, you know, um, I would occasionally just start to look at what the show must look like from the third balcony all the way to the side. And at some point, I just kind of had to give up on it because oh. I said, oh, my God, this is, this is such a different experience. And and there's no way that I'll be able to serve. There's no way I'll be able to make a strong um, a visual interpretation of this piece if I'm trying to serve this crazy theater that does not allow for uh, for any perspective other than the central perspective, mm-hmm. so it was difficult. I think that's that's a that's a that's a battle that I kind of I feel like I kind of lost because uh, uh, that was something that I just felt like well, ideally everyone in this theater would have, or ideally uh, the people on the farthest balcony would maybe actually have the best perspective on the right. show, um, or at least an insight, right? Yes, like some is, some yeah. something that some irony that's revealed only from where they're right, sitting, right? right. But yeah. it, but it does become impossible because right. the, the physical structure. Yeah. I mean, ooh, that's a metaphor for our entire society. Yeah. In a nutshell. Yeah. It has a lot of social implications, and I just realized it was it was it was situations like that, like experiences like that, that have really reminded me how much I'm still such an American artist. You know, mm. so. Uh, uh, you know, conditioned by the way of thinking uh, that that is here, rather than the way opera is in Europe. I mean, it's, it really is so radically different. And I think the idea that uh, doing opera as an American artist and here in Los Angeles, the sense of the uh, freedom of uh, from from tradition is um, is enormously uh, uh, rewarding and. Uh, opens up the possibility of thinking, well, what if we do an opera in the train station? What if we do an opera in cars? It's the kind of thing that when I go to Europe and try and explain these projects from the industry, they just have, they really look at me like I'm utterly crazy. Um, and they certainly don't think it's really opera. They think yeah. that it's some sort of, uh, you know, kooky experiment, you know, uh, attention grabbing. Uh, they don't think it, it is actually an art, you know, an artistic expression yeah. along, along the lines of the kind of uh, artistic expressions that they've come to know as, as opera. I mean, it really makes me think of this great quote by John Cage when uh, a musician had told him when he was living in Los Angeles and, a, and a, a composer that was living in Europe would say, how can you write serious music so far from the center? And of course he was implying as the center, he was <laughs> implying Europe. And John Cage, with his usual uh, utter brilliance, um, said, uh, well, how could you write serious music so close to the center? So it was the fact that uh, John Cage was writing these pieces uh, with the feeling of um, not being in the shadow of some sort of tradition or an expectation of what music is supposed to be that allowed him to look at things with such a fresh, clean perspective uh, to think about silence on its own Mm. and let silence be its own power. Uh, to think about new organizational structures for creating music that are not hierarchical, that are actually based on chance. All of these things that a European mindset would have, I mean, I don't even know where they would get to there, (laughs) you know? It's the idea that that was um, an aspect of of being here in Los Angeles uh, that really kind of led led John Cage to think about these kind of things. And that's something that, that I think the other artists, I mean, I moved to Los Angeles about 10 years ago, and it was because you know, all of the other artists that have now become part of the company of the industry or who I've worked with on projects for the industry, there is that mentality, I think, of looking at things differently, um, uh, not taking conventional wisdom uh, at face value, but but with joy sort of uh, exploring everything mm-hmm. as if it's uh, as if nothing's a given. Well, and, and there's a way in which, you know, make that, that notion of, of um, you know, looking at it like, oh, just 
people in Europe dismissing something like hopscotch as a gimmick, you know, you the idea of it being an opera that's performed via a series of car rides, you know, it was not born out of like even though like yes, you could say, well that's a that's a gimmick, but mm-hmm. the quintessential thing about Los Angeles is you're always in your car. <laughs> and so you were you were grappling with this idea of right. the fundamental truth of being an Angelino right. is you're in transit one way or another and all the ways that manifested and and there's an intimacy mm. and a spectacle to that all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this constant, the shifting from mode to mode and these, these contractions and expansions of, of what was going on and right. sometimes in private and sometimes in public and these, these moments of like passing by people or mm-hmm. seeing things loop around, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. even though from the outside you can go like, oh, it's a trick, but on the inside it was nothing but true. Mm. Right. And so if there's Thank truth, you. yeah, if there's truth in it, then then it's not about, you know, it's only it's only a it's only a gimmick if it's if it's not anchored to some some honesty. Yeah, I mean, and maybe, I mean, to, um, thank you, that's a really, really nice uh, thing to say about that project, Um, because it was certainly an easy project for people to write off if they didn't see it, because, okay, it's happening in cars, I get it, you know. Um, So, but I, but certainly, I mean, the impetus for it was uh, to really explore what it means to be alive in this really strange unique wonderful city uh what it what it is what it does mean to move through your life and move through neighborhoods um with the windshield as a kind of a screen like as if it's a cinematic screen yeah um what does that mean about how you engage with the life on the street how can art i mean this was a big issue in invisible cities too is how can art how can music how can the experience of this performance help you notice things that Mm. you don't notice yeah Um, you know um one of the things that i heard a lot during invisible cities was uh, because it was open to the public, the train station was just open to the public, so anyone could come by, and certainly all walks of life would come by at any given performance. And you know, there was there was quite a number of homeless people at the at the train station at any given performance. Um, the way that there were also politicians and people catching their train. I mean, it was this kind of slice of life. But it really dawned on me that you know, in Los Angeles, we. Um, have this ability to feel like we always know exactly what to expect uh, visually when mm. we get someplace. Yeah. And so to be confronted by something so unexpected, like uh, homeless people in a beautiful building, you know, the opera wasn't necessarily about that. It was just, you know, one of, but like I said, one of the elements was, was actually noticing the city around us in this way. I think for a lot of people, it, it made people, you know, it, it, it made it hit home what it meant to have homeless people uh, in our city, which is kind of this invisible and less and le- less and less invisible, yeah. more and more visible yeah. problem, you know? Um, oh, yeah. No, I mean, and, I mean, back then there was you know, Skid Row was still Skid Row, but we did not have any of the, the sort of uh, suburban, uh, right. the, the, the suburbs of Skid Row that have you know, set up everywhere now under right. every underpass. Right. Right. But when we and, and that's, you know, we go to we go to these sanctioned spaces where art happens, like mm. Walt Disney Concert Hall. Dorothy Chandler, you know, um, even smaller theaters, you know, you're not necessarily going to be confronted by this social issue the same way yeah. as when you are suddenly watching a performance and um, you are really you're you have no visual distractions other than the life of in that moment in that building. And you're also not separated from it. Uh, I mean, the headphones puts an interesting kind of element of distance to your uh, and, and, and I thought a really kind of fascinating sense of mediation mm. to the world around you, but no more mediation than when you just walk through a normal train station with headphones listening uh, to your own music. Um, nonetheless, this feeling that um, you are actually on the same exact level, you are not uh, looking out, you're not looking into this building from outside. You're actually walking among everybody, uh, all walks of life. Uh, you're one part of a fabric of a moment of this, uh, the existence of this building. And there's something equalizing about that that I felt was um, definitely one of the intentions behind behind Invisible Cities. Not to say, okay, uh, this is going to be an opera now about about homelessness, and we're going to, you know, have a hard hitting message at the end uh, uh, to indicate that. I don't think that's where art. I don't think that that's where art has its primary power in terms of delivering messages. I think it's much more powerful in that sense of asking you to look, asking you to be curious, and asking you to contemplate. Um, the world that we're actually in. Yeah. And when I find that when a piece of art is particularly effective, it 
it starts to like reframe how I'm looking at the world and particularly like afterwards, like I'll come out of a piece and you know, either I'll feel like the world's on fire or I'll be mm. seeing connections between things. Um, you know, to the, the two big moments I always refer to in my own experience was one coming out of American psycho and wondering if everyone around me was a sociopath. Uh, <laughs> and then two coming out of coming out of then she fell in, in Brooklyn and just, just, just the world feeling like it was numinous again because like the smallest detail had been in that space had been filled with such import that like everything kind of caught on fire for, wow. for a few hours. That's beautiful. Um, I'm sorry. I haven't seen that. Actually, oh, but, you should check it out. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful piece. It keeps on running. Uh, yes, hopefully, hopefully forever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, at a certain point, you know, all things anyway, I don't want to go there. That's sad. <laughs> um, two things I definitely want to hit uh, while I've still got you. Cause I know we've only got so much time. One, uh, I think we'll get to second is uh, the, the current project, yeah, Sweetland and, and getting a breakdown there. But you mentioned something at the start about uh, wanting to touch on something yeah. about, uh, do you remember? Immersion. Yeah. Participation. Yeah. 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 I think especially with Crescent city and uh, especially Crescent city, much more than invisible cities or hopscotch, you know, um, the notion of, this as a kind of immersive piece, mm-hmm. uh, like like opera as immersive opera. You know, it was it was one of the buzzwords that 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 some people caught on to early on, or really kind of attached to the to the work that we were doing. And I guess I've always had some issue with that, not because not for any. Uh, you know, I, I think that I mean, I, like I said, I haven't seen uh, Then She Fell. I've seen Sleep No More. I have my issues with Sleep No More in terms of like the like what differentiates it from a haunted house, you know, mm. like what's the difference between going to this? And, you know, those are really fun experiences. Um, I would like the theatrical experience to have more layers in it, more content, more possibilities for, uh, for meaning. And I, I don't want this to sound in any way, um, you know, like negative about, about, uh, about uh, sleep no more or other immersive pieces because, um, I think the the trend towards uh, immersion clearly comes from our being uh, so enamored with digital universes and mm-hmm. virtual worlds and uh, our te- our you know our uh, our mobile phones our like our screens like you know it's like it's clearly the response to that is yeah. everything's tactile every like everything around you uh, is it's not just a flat projected image it's not a digital composite it's actually real life and yeah. so it's clear so I love that impulse. I think that's a really fantastic impulse. I guess I just question, uh, first of all, its ability, uh, those projects' ability to uh, to go beyond the experience. I'm not sure experience alone um, is uh, makes for the kind of theater that I would like to create. Let's put it that mm. way. You know, I think the experience is, uh, in many ways, experience can replace narrative. But um, in other ways, and I think that's what that talk was that I gave with mm. Rossini was about what, whether experience can replace what we look for in terms of narrative structures. Yeah, um, I guess it's just more about the idea that you know what I love in great literature, what I love in great music, uh, and what I think opera does best is layering and the ideas of all of these different layers of meaning and layers of ideas. Um, intersecting with each other and uh, clashing with each other or harmonizing with each other less than a kind of uh, monolithic experience, yeah. um, you know? Um, because m- my experience of some of these more immersive pieces has been that um, they tend to, for the sake of it being a kind of free-for-all, uh, it loses uh, some depth or it loses some connection to, uh, to, to, some, to, to deeper thematic explorations and really becomes about uh, your, your solitary experience um, through a uh, through what well, ultimately for me um, can feel more passive sometimes than mm. than, than uh, straightforward theater. You know, I mean, I think there the other exciting thing about immersive immersive theater in uh, you know just on the surface is that uh, it seems to be very active. Like you get to choose which way you go. It's it's a kind of choose your own adventure. You know, uh, you get to you know if you choose to open the drawer and find a a piece of paper, then that becomes uh, an experience that's solely yours. You know, um, that sounds really interesting, but I just wonder if it's truly active or whether it's another form of passivity somehow. I mean, I I tend to talk about th- this form of work um, involving three different types of agency, 
and mm. there's there's narrative agency, mm-hmm. which is the ability to affect the story, yeah. uh, which sometimes can be satisfying. Other times can actually be an impediment to there being like cohesion of yeah. theme. Yeah. Um, yeah. I talk about physical agency, which is like mm-hmm. deciding where you can go, but also like do you open that drawer? Uh, all kinds of traversal, you know, um, and then uh, emotional agency, which is when you get into moments of interactivity with the performers. Mm. And that's a nice way to, to yeah. distinguish that. And even if you have. It, there's two ways I look at the emotional agency. Like uh, usually if a scene has like high emotional agency, but low narrative agency, what you're dealing with is a situation as a performer, as a former performer, it feels like I showed up to rehearse a scene with my scene partner. I don't know my lines and I've just got to sit there and be really receptive and open and, and non verbally give them what they need or just like try and follow the cues (laughs) and thus, thus give them something to work with. Mm when I put a director's hat on it, it also starts, it starts to feel like a bit of a superpower as a director where it's like, mm. oh, if I just emotionally react to this performer, mm. they're going to modulate their how they're performing. Mm. Their 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 mood is going to change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the their approach their approach to the scene may change based on what I'm giving back to them. Mm. The way you might have like in any conversation, like someone's got an intent, but like how you're responding to that person, it mm-hmm. it changes the tone and the tenor. Mm-hmm. When you have those three tools in your palette you can start to kind of play with them and i think mm-hmm. what's interesting about this much of the way that opera is still mm-hmm. uncovering itself mm-hmm. uh this form is still uncovering itself like yeah. how do we do it and and folks sometimes lean very heavily into the narrative agency yeah. side of things that makes sense but they create like kind of these like very very blunt choices and mm-hmm. you find yourself with these narrative trees where it's like well there's 64 different endings to this experience <laughs> but how many of them are satisfying sure. how many of them not yeah. not good but yeah. actually satisfying yeah, yeah. right like yeah. have some sense of resonance mm. and then there's and then sometimes people build things with the idea that you know well it takes a couple of times before you start to see the the overall pattern emerge mm. right mm. like mm. it's it's so deconstructed that mm. it doesn't make sense unless you kind of slip back through mm. sleep no more has a bit of Sleep No More was intentionally designed that way, and I definitely liked it better the second time I saw it mm-hmm. than the first time I saw it because I started to started to know what was going on. But mm-hmm. that is that is a big ask for people to like, you know, <laughs> like, did you feel like you missed something? Come back around and like see what's been missing, or or now mm-hmm. you understand why this this relationship is this way, and then that starts yeah. to create that perceptual shift about the world itself, yeah. and starts to play with that that same kind of like non unprivileged mm-hmm. perspective. That's nice. Um, I think that, I mean, what you just said, I, I think that's a really nice way to, to articulate um, what what's happening in these pieces. But um, that notion that you can't see everything, uh, yeah. that's something that I really actually loved with the industry projects. Maybe that's the real intersection. It, it's yeah. happening again with this new piece, Sweetland, um, is this feeling that there is no possibility of a complete experience, yeah. you know, and that um, we often... Uh, view the world thinking that, oh, we have a total understanding of how it works. Of course, that is the comp- biggest illusion that you could possibly have. <laughs> we don't understand how anything works. We don't even yeah. understand how our own bodies work. But we have to, um, you know, we just, we, uh, uh, the idea that actually being confronted with a situation in which um, you won't know what you're missing and that feeling of missing out on something. Um, that's something that that's an that's an element that I really love. Because yeah, it's a feature, not a bug. I think some people. Yeah, like, I think that people yeah. who are deep fans of this, like, like they 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 sometimes view it as a bug. Mm. You know, it's like mm. I, I got to know everything. Yes, right. But some of my favorite pieces are deliberately designed so that the only way for me to have a better understanding is if I then turn to another yeah. audience member and say, "So what did you, what was your experience? Yeah. What did you see? Why was this guy this way? Right. What was that conversation you were having?" Right. Well, and hopscotch and hopscotch was similar in the sense that I mean. It, first of all, it ran so it, we couldn't run it that long. I mean, right. It ran for about a month, and there was no one who could see all th- it, like the, could see the whole thing. But actually, for people who really looked carefully, the story was incomplete. There was one chapter that was just missing, mm-hmm. you know. So, it, you, but you would have had to have gone through the work of saying, "Okay, I saw chapter seven, 14, you know, and then actually line them all up, and then realize, "Oh, there was no chapter twenty-one, you know." And uh, even in the program book, it just skipped it. So I mean, it really for people who paid attention, there was the opportunity to realize that the incompleteness was uh, absolutely the feature was was a feature like you said. It was not a mistake. It was actually something we were leaning into uh, because so much of the thematic um, exploration of that piece was uh, the sense of the incompleteness of our perception mm. um, in in a field of 
signs in the, the field of the city with so many symbols, so many signs around us. Um, there's no sense to get a totalizing uh, kind of view of the world. And that's something somehow that we have to just embrace because that is part of our condition. Um, so that's, that's, so I, that aspect of it, that aspect of it, I, I really love. I don't, that's not what bothers me at all. Um, I guess it's just the matter of when I saw Sleep No More, for example, um, I actually just felt like I was kind of sleepwalking through my own experience, partially with the mask, partially with the feeling that even though my uh, narrative agency might have been uh, particularly spoken to at a, at, a, at a high level, it at a certain point felt like, well, it, it doesn't really matter, actually. You know, like I could yeah. just sna- I could just sit here in this one location and things come and things oh, go. Oh, there's the way I reckon there's zero narrative agency in Sleep No More. It's, <laughs> it's like Sleep No More is almost it's a, it's 95 percent of it is. Um, traversal mm-hmm. like like physical agency right, right, right. uh it's just rooms they tell you don't go there right, right so like that's right. the hard the hard lines of the box right and about five percent emotional agency if you're lucky enough to be selected by a performer mm-hmm. to be played with for a right. moment but right. even then you've got you have very 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 little agency mm-hmm. in in those but like narrative it's just a machine like there's nothing you can do to stop it yeah and that's where again that's where that's where i i that's where i have difficulty because mm. um it, ha- it gives you the illusion of agency uh, throughout and yet lets you reproduce a sense of the passivity in our lives. You know, yeah. So it's, again, you think you have total control, but of course you have zero control. And, uh, it, you know, it's it's one of those things. I mean, I think at, that, at the talk that I gave for, for, for No Pro, I, 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 it's a story that I particularly love, which is um, in relation to this, which is, uh, you know, the, uh, Peter Pan, if you go see like a high school production of Peter Pan, there's like the moment in which er- the whole audience has to clap for Tinkerbell to see if she's going to live or die. I think there's there's a play somewhere. I remember when it's I was in a high Christopher school. Christopher Durang play. That, yeah, yeah, I forgot which play yeah, it was. I can, but, I, I, I've been in it, but I can't remember which one it was. But yes, no. But of the, the, the traumatized the act, audience member. I believe the actor's member. nightmare. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, well, yeah. It was like the traumatized audience member that was in the theater when the... Peter Pan decided that actually the applause wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, Tinkerbell died and it's all your fault. And what's <laughs> hilarious about that particular kind of, you know, speculative idea about what, what, what that could, because of course, of course that never happens in every mm-hmm. Peter Pan performance. They, they just work the audience up in such, into such a frenzy that, that of course Tinkerbell is going to survive. Right. And, and even if the audience is tame, that the, the play can't go on without <laughs> Tinkerbell being saved. And so but it is this fantasy that one day, <laughs> I know I mean, it's a great fantasy, but it's also it's it, to me it's the perfect symbol of uh, this illusion of activity. So you have this feeling that your clapping is going to produce an effective outcome uh, on the piece of theater that you're seeing, um, but actually it doesn't matter. I mean, if you sat, I mean, I, you know, if you sat there on your hands and everyone else worked themselves into a friend, the same thing will happen. You know, mm. and it's that kind of illusion of active participation that has its subversive uh pernicious effects on the way when we leave the theater Mm. i think in terms of how we interact with the world at large that i that i that i feel i I feel needs need to be watched very carefully that's the brechtian side of me you know that really thinks actually theater is a kind of laboratory for how we are in our society Mm. and what are we actually cultivating when we go into the theater you know are we cultivating other forms of passivity, even if they look fancy and they look, yeah. you know, and they look shiny and they look yeah. new and they look, they have novelty, yeah. but they don't necessarily uh, really give you the are agency. We, are we manufacturing complacency that's a, uh, with yeah. an illusion of agency? That's, and that's, and, that's and, what and, I get. That's yeah. what I get a stronger sense of yeah. more often. You know? I mean, and, and there's, I mean, there's ways to like, it's a shame that we're going to run out of time. Like oh. there's ways to like, there's, there's definitely room to like subvert, you know, that and like, you know, uh, it, yeah. it actually makes me think of um, probably don't. I, I doubt you play a lot of video games, but like uh, there's a game called Bio. <laughs> I, oh, I love video games. I just uh, don't ever make, make uh, it to the. There's a game called Bio. There's a game called Bioshock, and and famously, and this is a really old game, so this is like spoilers for an ancient video game at this point. Um, you've been you go through the entire game. You've been listening to these radio things, and this person's been talking to you on the radio. Uh, and leading you through and then you realize at a certain point that it's actually the bad guy and mm. they've gotten you to just, like take out all their rivals and you find out that uh, you've been the victim of a post-hypnotic suggestion mm. uh, the phrase would you kindly mm. and they and they at every point in their dialogue boxes said would you kindly and you mm. just you follow along mm. because you've got you literally have no other choice and so it's a bit of a cheat yeah. but at the same time it's a commentary on mm. well you just went along with all this because there was nothing else to do yeah. like yeah. 
who are you really in this world? Yeah, like, yeah. like where was your agency? You thought you had control, but you just played off mm-hmm. the script like everybody else did. Yeah. And it's this moment that goes, oh my God, wham. And then it leads to a really lame boss fight. So, oh. but like <laughs> there's that moment for yeah. one shining moment, your, your little mind is just mm-hmm. completely yeah. blown apart. Yeah. And I think that that's, I mean, that um, I, really, that is um, such an, such an important factor of the new piece that we're doing Sweetland because Sweetland is um, actually trying to understand how the stories that we tell ourselves uh, about our own history are the product of the manufacturing of the people in power. You know, mm. that, that, that the story of American, uh, of what it means to be American, tells one very particular story. I was thinking about it when you when you told the story about the comic book and what's outside the frame. Mm. It's like, that's exactly what we're exploring with Sweetland, is there's the framed version of who we are in our history. And it's it's uh, very clearly um, it, it very clearly has an author, you know, and yeah. the author is kind of you know white nationalists for the most part, you know. Yeah. And I think that the last election really kind of showed us not that this is some weird aberration, but this is still the uh, this is still the unpacking of the original sins of of America that uh, that America has not ever properly encountered um made it made amends for and uh, and really atoned for and uh so we're this is um we unfortunately it seems like we're out of time yeah but uh i well, I mean, just you, whatever time you've time. got yeah, yeah well I'll, i mean i'll just say that this is the very first sweetland is so complex and exciting in so many ways because it's the first time we're trying to take all of these narrative strategies about the push and pull between uh, uh, active and passive spectatorship, the idea of the audience splitting and seeing different things, uh, seeing di- diverging paths that uh, that don't necessarily close on each other, so that mm. it leaves things open, um, how all of those could be instructive in understanding how we tell the stories of ourselves. Um, it's, it's, it's our most political work. Um, it's one in which um, it's one in which um, I wish we could talk about it for another ten minutes, but uh, but I you've got, <laughs> I you've got to go through All I'll say is yeah. that it's it's um, it's definitely a continuation of some of the concerns yeah. uh, that I've been kind of artistically interested in from Crescent City through Hopscotch, but um, I'm very curious to see how it's going to manifest in this uh, conversation around uh, suddenly, let's say let's say much darker, much, much more negative, um, kind of topics, you know, hopscotch in the end felt like such a sell for all of the anxiety around yeah. driving and the loneliness and the alienation and that we explored that in the piece too, but I think it ultimately was, was such a positive vision. And, you know, now's the time to, to think really critically and to think about how the voices that we've cultivated over these years, how they can actually be helping us try and understand, uh, our civic identity at a, at a much more uncomfortable and a much more uh, dislocated uh, kind of sensibility. Let's do this after after the run. After I, after I get a chance to to go through it, let's let's get back together. Okay, and, that and, sounds and, fair. And 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 and, and talk about <laughs> the themes and deconstruct. Because I know I, w- I would love for you to like go on at length and like clearly, but like yeah. the traffic. Ironically enough, the traffic gods are conspired against us today. <laughs> yes, no L- problem. L.A. had its revenge, yes, as always. L.A. intervention, that's uh, perfect. But yeah, I would I would love to uh, do a wrap-up on Sweetland yeah. and get your thoughts from being an audience member. Yeah. Uh, well, I think, we, I, I think there's a lot to, like, you know, go into, and, and it'll be fresh in some of, some of the listeners' minds and, cool. and be able to, like, dig down deep. And, totally. Because clearly, just on the structural level, you know, there's there's a lot. To, to talk about and if i knew we were going to talk Breck today i would have like you know dusted off some of my old college <laughs> yeah. essays and be like what was i thinking 20 years ago so. <laughs> uh, well there you go we'll save that for next time then absolutely you've all thank you so much thank you no great to be here Once again, I want to thank you all, Sharon, for being our guest on the show today. You can find the industry at the industry LA. That's the industry, the letters L, the letters A dot org. Um, that's the show for today. Uh, Got to run off and get some stuff done. Uh, there's that little summit that we're making for you. Um, keep up with what's going on. Uh, we're going to have some reportage out of Sundance next week. Uh, Will Cherry was there. So was I, um, 
I have the grace of the Sundance Institute. Really, I, I need to thank uh, the New Frontier uh, just doubly for uh, bringing me out. That was an incredible experience, and it was just such a joy to be able to be on a panel with uh, the, the, the folks that, that were on that panel, folks from like the RSC and the National Theater, and just, just some really uh, amazing creators, some absolutely fantastic work going on. Um, well, Cherry and I are going to get together soon, uh, we hope, and talk about it. So I'm not going to get into it here. There's time for that later. Um, and, and Will saw way more than I did. So I'm really excited to give you guys the full debrief. Uh, that's what's going on there. Uh, there's been a ton of stuff, stuff out of London this week on the, uh, the, that blog we run called No Persinium, uh, website. I think we can call it a website. Uh, just great work going on uh, from everyone. Uh, Catherine did this incredible, uh, academic paper type piece, <laughs> That makes it sound like it's a really good piece uh, uh, riffing on uh, uh, the, the types of engagement um, and uh, like the four E's kind of riffing on some Henry Jenkins uh, stuff. And it's just it's if, if you don't have a, a great framework for approaching uh, this kind of work, um, I, I highly encourage you to to read this one because uh, it's it's going to help you out uh, and it reaches back into uh, into a tradition and provides structure and that's something that was something I will say this about the, the panel experience I had you know the role I kept on finding myself in was helping to frame and give structure uh, to what the different artists were talking about and so um, it, it, it's it's something that's still of value to everyone and uh, that that's an exciting process, and I'm I'm so very proud of the work Catherine's doing right now, uh, both uh, you know with us of course, and also the work she's doing at USC and how that is getting back out into our world and informing the discussion here, um, and informing the discussion that will be at here the Here Summit Festival, <laughs> March twenty seventh through 29th at the Pasadena Playhouse. See, look at that, look at that. It's a born broadcaster. Okay. Before my voice gives out completely, because I am sort of fighting a travel cold here. Um, I said here again. Now, now we got a drinking game. Um, you can find everything we do at nopersinium.com. We're at nopersinium on Twitter and Facebook. We're at no underscore persinium on our Instagram, which you should definitely check out because we do these amazing takeovers. Um, uh, just, just fantastic behind the scenes and sometimes in world glimpses at the shows. Uh, that are going on, um, and if you are someone who's been making these uh, or wants to know how to make one and to do better, um, pay attention to what Majestic Rep does. Uh, Troy Hurd and his team, when they do the takeovers, they are absolutely brilliant. So uh, take a take a page from Troy's playbook there. Uh, just so freaking good. Um, so check out our Instagram and uh, like seriously, honestly, it's it's a it's 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 good. It's legitimately good. Uh, it's <laughs> it's the only Instagram account. I really like looking at the stories of anyway. Um, <laughs> I don't make any of them, so I'm just fascinated what's going on. All right. Um, on that note. This is brought to you by Patreon.com slash no proscenium. That means that's the the listeners of this show, listeners like you, and our sustaining backers are Mark Baltazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Lonnie Hansen, Ari Hurston, Sam Kidkin, Sidney Guillory, and Jeremy Charles Hahn. Thank you all. The music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. My name is Noah Nelson, and until next time, I'll see you at the show. <laughs>